Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. I went to a typical American grade school, which ended in sixth grade. We had a great tradition at my school that I guess started sometime in the 60s, where the graduating class went to a summer camp for a long weekend right before school ended. The name of the camp was Camp Wapalani. Camp Wapalani was in northern New Jersey, near Lake Kittatinny, which is sort of near the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, up in the northwest section of the state. Now, there was always two schools of summer camp in my head. The Meatballs School of Summer Camp, which was fun, and you get to meet Bill Murray and be his best friend and run a race and win. And the other one was the Friday the 13th School of Summer Camp, which always involved you getting killed. I was always vacillating between the two in my head, and when it came to Camp Wapalani, I wasn't sure if I even wanted to go. Lucky for me, my mother took a role in making that decision for me. She was very worried about sending me away to camp. Perhaps she watched way too many late-night movies, or just didn't think they would take good care of me. I don't know, she had two other daughters who had gone to Camp Wapalani, so maybe she knew what was going on up there. When I brought home the permission slip, she wasn't outright against the idea. She just cleverly made it much more attractive for me not to go. In other words, she bribed me. She bribed me with money to go to the movies and pizza and play video games to basically have a great weekend at home rather than having a very mysterious weekend up in the woods. Now, I know what happened up there. My friends told me all about it. They slept. There were lots of bugs. It was cold. Meanwhile, at home, I was at the arcade and the pizza parlor pretty much all Friday. And on Saturday, I went to the movies and had a great time. Then that night, I watched horror movies on HBO and was scared out of my mind. It was a strange time in my neighborhood because it was getting lighter because spring had passed and summer was approaching. So there would often be a lot of activity in my neighborhood. But since every kid in my neighborhood who was my age was away, it was frighteningly empty. And I remember that Sunday morning waking up and being kind of scared that my friends who had been up at this lake were never going to come back because they were killed by Jason Voorhees. Of course, that didn't happen. That Monday, they all came to school and told me I missed out on everything. Me, I'll always remember how I had a great weekend where I didn't have to go to school on Friday and got to play video games, eat pizza, and stay up late. To each his own. On today's show, we're going to talk about the movie Friday the 13th. We're going to talk about the concept behind it, how it came to be, its enduring legacy, the actors in the film, the locations, the music, and its influence on popular culture. Metagirl's got a great top five list, and we got a bunch more surprises. So, without further ado, let's start the show.
Friday the 13th began in the mind of producer and director Sean S. Cunningham. Actually, the film didn't begin in his mind, or at least the film that we came to know it, but the title did and the idea of a movie called Friday the 13th did. Cunningham had worked as a producer with Wes Craven on the film The Last House on the Left, which was a great horror film and a moderate success. Fast forward a couple of years later and John Carpenter released the movie Halloween. Halloween was done on a moderately low budget and was a big hit. Teen horror flicks had arrived and Cunningham realized that with the right title, with the right marketing, with the right story, that he could make a hit himself. He really fixated on having the title Friday the 13th. And there was actually a different use for the title of Friday the 13th that would have been a very interesting concept had it actually come about. Since it was so generic, they could perhaps package movies that were completely separate and just release them as an unrelated horror anthology every Friday the 13th. That, of course, would not happen. But the idea would be revived years later for Friday the 13th, the series, which ran in syndication for three seasons. Cunningham seemed to know immediately that the title was a good idea and went through great lengths to try to nail down the title for himself because when he got the title, he was kind of worried that there were other movies that were called Friday the 13th and that he might have a lawsuit on his hands because it was such a catchy title. So committed was he that he commissioned a New York advertising agency to concept out the logo. He ran an ad in Variety. Now, there had been a movie called Friday the 13th, The Orphan, the preceding year, that had been moderately successful. That movie was about a young boy who loses his parents in a grisly fashion and is raised by his prudish aunt. And because she is so restrictive, he starts going mad. The folks behind Friday the 13th reached an agreement with the producers and owners of The Orphan for an undisclosed amount, and they got the rights to the name. And now Friday the 13th, The Orphan is often just referred to as The Orphan, which I actually think in terms of this movie is a much better title. So they have the rights to Friday the 13th. They've run an ad in Variety, which is doing its job of attracting capital. People are starting to buzz about it, and the film hasn't even been made yet. Here you had the most terrifying film ever made, being the title of an ad for a movie that had not been made, or even fully written. So now they needed a great story. The actual plot for the movie comes from a script written by Victor Miller. Miller has since done a lot of work on soap operas, which makes a lot of sense since they're pretty scary as well. Miller, when approached about creating a movie about a serial killer, was delighted and took to the idea almost immediately. He loved the idea of a serial killer who's a mother. Because you got to remember up to that point, one of the most famous movies about a serial killer was about a boy who obsesses about his mother. Whereas Friday the 13th would be a movie about a mother who's obsessed with her boy, and that drives her to kill. In Miller's own words, I took motherhood and I turned it around on its head, and I think it was great fun. Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Okay, now, they had a script ready and a budget of about a half million dollars. They lined up a couple of stars and needed to find a good location to film a terrifying movie about death at a summer camp. And naturally, they chose my home state of New Jersey. The movie was shot in and around the township of Blairstown, where my uncle lives currently. And the camp scenes were shot at a working Boy Scout camp called Camp Noby Bosco. Camp Noby Bosco is situated alongside the Kittatinny Ridge, which is near the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border. It is actually still an active camp for Boy Scouts. It began operation in 1927 and is still an active Boy Scout camp, although they are the only Boy Scout camp that offers a merit badge in serial killer defeating. 
I used to spend a lot of time up in Kittatinny with my family. My uncle always lived in that area, and I would spend a lot of my summers with my cousins. And after I found out that Friday the 13th was filmed up there, it was never the same. The nighttime walks were much more terrifying, and I really respected what I came to see as complete and total bravery of both of my cousins in an area I was quietly convinced was the hunting ground of Jason Voorhees. Now, I guess before I proceed, I should probably give a little info on the plot. Now, if you plan on seeing Friday the 13th anytime soon, you might want to pause, go watch it, but this is a warning. I'm going to outline the plot in some detail. Friday the 13th opens up in 1958, as two Camp Crystal Lake counselors are in a back room, amorously undressing one another. An unknown assailant sneaks into the room and murders them both. Fast forward to Friday, June 13th in the present day, which you could imagine is 1979 or 1980, a young woman named Annie, who was played by Robbie Morgan, enters a diner and asks for directions to Camp Crystal Lake. This seems to send shockwaves throughout the patrons at the diner. Then a strange old man named Ralph, played by Walt Gorney, who seems surprised that the camp is reopening, says that everyone at the camp is doomed. Very ominous. Enos, played by Rex Everhart, who is a truck driver, agrees to give Annie a lift halfway to the camp. During the lift, he warns her about the camp and tells her a little bit of a backstory. He says that a young boy drowned in Crystal Lake in 1957, one year before the murder of the amorous counselors, which we saw at the very beginning of the film. Enos lets her out halfway there. Not surprisingly, a second person in a jeep then pulls up and offers to give Annie a ride the rest of the way to Camp Crystal Lake. This second driver, who we don't see, murders Annie. Meanwhile, at the camp, the other counselors, who are Jack, played by Kevin Bacon, that's right, Kevin Bacon in one of his earliest roles, Ned, played by Mark Wilson, Bill, played by Harry Crosby, Marcy, played by Janine Taylor, Alice, played by Adrian King, Brenda, played by Lori Bartram, and the camp's owner, Steve Christie, who is played by Peter Brower, are busy refurbishing the camp. Steve, the owner, leaves the campground to go get more supplies to complete the work. While he's gone, the unidentified killer from the Jeep begins to isolate and slowly kill each of the counselors. Later that evening, Steve returns, is also murdered, but is apparently familiar with his attacker. Alice is the last one to survive. She is the heroine of the movie. And when Alice runs out to warn Steve, she meets up with a kindly-looking middle-aged woman who introduces herself as Mrs. Voorhees. Now, that's a name you're probably already familiar with. She was played by the great Betsy Palmer. Mrs. Voorhees says that she's an old friend of the Christie's. Alice tries to explain the murders. Mrs. Voorhees then explains to Alice that she is the mother of the boy who drowned in the lake in 1957, and that today is his birthday. Dum-dum-dum. She then begins to ramble, blaming her son Jason's drowning on the two counselors being otherwise occupied. Mrs. Voorhees pulls out a knife and then starts rushing Alice. There's a lengthy chase where Alice runs and she's finding dead bodies everywhere. Her and Mrs. Voorhees have a couple of confrontations with each time Alice believing she's killed Mrs. Voorhees, but being wrong. During the final fight scene, Alice manages to decapitate Mrs. Voorhees with her own machete. Brilliant. Then, for some reason, Alice climbs in a canoe and floats to the middle of the lake. And thus, we believe the movie is over. There's a big twist at the end of Friday the 13th, which opens the door for Jason to become the killer in future movies. While Alice is floating in the lake with her kind of hand hanging over the edge, Jason pops out of the water and grabs her. It was actually a scene that was cooked up at the very end 
of production of the film, when the very famous makeup designer Tom Savini had seen the movie Carrie, he recognized the brilliance of the cliffhanger ending where the hand shoots up at the very end and scares everybody in what is referred to as a chair jumper. So on the spur of the moment, they decided to film this shot with her in the lake and having Jason pop up. I don't think that they realized at the time that they would be opening the door for 10 sequels that all starred Jason Voorhees as the killer. Miller was never happy with that. He liked the idea of Mrs. Voorhees being the killer. And since that was his creative idea, he was kind of bummed that in future films, a very innocent character, someone he saw as a victim, suddenly is back as a spirit of vengeance. The movie has some great actors in it. The one who is probably best known is Kevin Bacon. The woman who played Mrs. Voorhees is Betsy Palmer. Betsy Palmer has done a bunch of movies and TV since then. She was a very well-known actress and had done a bunch of television and movies. Most notably, she appeared in Mr. Roberts with Jack Lemmon in 1955 and in the same year appeared in The Long Gray Line. Now, how did they get Miss Palmer to do this movie? Well, she actually had read it and thought it was pretty horrible, but decided to do the movie because she needed the money for a new car. Miss Palmer was asked to come back to reprise her role in the Friday the 13th franchise, but has turned them down repeatedly. Adrian King, who played Alice, is a very gifted actress who studied at the London Royal Academy. After Friday the 13th, she actually stopped working for a while and only agreed to be in the sequel if her role was made very small. The reasoning behind this is that she was stalked and terrorized by an obsessive fan who had seen Friday the 13th. She was actually up for the role of Alice against another big-name actor, namely Miss Sally Field. She and Betsy Palmer have the distinction of being the only two actresses to appear in more than one Friday the 13th film her appearing in part one and part two. She made her return to acting in 2008 for the movie Walking Distance, which is a science fiction horror film. It's good to see her back after all these years. The movie also had Janine Taylor, who is an actress who actually stopped working pretty much right after Friday the 13th. She has one of my favorite quotes about the movie. She said, I don't even really think of this movie as a horror film. To me, this was a small independent film about some very carefree teenagers were having a rip-roaring time at a summer camp where they happened to be working as counselors. They just happened to get killed. That's a great understated way to sum up Friday the 13th. Spunky Robbie Morgan played Annie, and Robbie Morgan is another person who has not really worked much since the 80s. Besides doing a couple of made-for-TV pictures, notably Forbidden Love and I Married a Centerfold, she made a guest appearance on the TV show The Fall Guy and then actually worked as a stunt person in the comedy The Great Outdoors. In 1987, Robbie married actor and Antiques Roadshow host Mark L. Wahlberg. At that wedding, Demi Moore served as her bridesmaid. And you might not have realized it, but there was Hollywood royalty at work in Friday the 13th. Harry Crosby, who was the son of Bing Crosby and Catherine Grant, played Bill in the movie. Harry stopped working in movies in the late 80s after a couple of small roles and took a job as an investment banker. Harry still works as an investment banker in New York, but occasionally performs with singers at coffee houses and clubs. So if you're in New York, make sure you bring your autograph book and your camera and maybe you could meet Bill from Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th has some great music and sound effects, and the musical score was created by Harry Manfredini. Harry was inspired by the 1975 hit Jaws to go with a music style that would only appear when the killer was around. 
That way you can foreshadow a kill and get the audience nervous without perhaps them even knowing why. Probably the most famous thing that he did was come up with that great music, the... That sound effect is often mispronounced by fans. It comes from the final reel of the film where Mrs. Voorhees arrives reciting, Kill her, Mommy. Kill her, Mommy. He thought those sounds were great, and he took the ki from kill and the ma from mommy and spoke them into a microphone very distinctly and rhythmically and then ran those sounds through an echo reverberation machine. And obviously, the final effect was... Another great talent that is associated with the movie is Tom Savini. Tom Savini is a very talented makeup artist who has worked both in front of and behind the camera with a guy whose nickname is the Godfather of Gore. You better believe he's good at his job. Gene Siskel, in his review, called Cunningham one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. That's a real quote. He also put Betsy Palmer's home address and encouraged fellow detractors to write her 
and tell her how horrible she was. When you think about what happened to Adrian King, you could see that perhaps publishing a person's home address was not the best move. Siskel and Ebert hated it so much that they spent almost a whole episode berating the movie and remarking how much they disliked the idea of a movie about a serial killer where you actually root for the serial killer. Leonard Maltin awarded the film one star, calling it a gory cardboard thriller. Variety said that the film was low-budget in the worst sense, with no apparent talent or intelligence to offset its technical inadequacies. Friday the 13th has nothing to exploit but its title. It is a good title, though, you gotta admit. One of the best reviews was from the Chicago readers David Kerr, who wrote, For all its shoddiness, the film manages, just barely, to achieve its ennoble goal, it delivers what it promises. And it does. It delivers a roller coaster ride of scares. It would only be when future movies in the series came out that reviewers' esteem of the film would rise. But of course, none of that mattered because the movie was a box office hit. Paramount saw a screening of the film and ponied up $1.5 million for the distribution rights. Not bad for a movie from 1980 with a half million dollar budget. Paramount then spent approximately $500,000 in advertising for the film and an additional half million when the film began performing well at the box office. It opened officially on May 9, 1980 in 1,100 theaters across the United States. In its opening weekend, it made $5.8 million. By the end of its domestic run, it would take in $39.7 million and become the 18th highest grossing film of 1980. Friday the 13th was released internationally, which was very unusual for an independent film at the time, with no recognizable or bankable actors. It would bring in an extra $20 million in international box office receipts by the end of its international run. Those box office figures would make Jason a international star and would spawn more than 10 sequels, including an amazing crossover with Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Jason would eventually become the killer in part two, and in part three, during his one 3D movie, he would put on that famous hockey mask that we've all come to know. Later, Jason would travel to Manhattan and even into space. Nothing can stop this killer, not even time, because in 2009, Friday the 13th, return to theaters with a Michael Bay produced reboot that I'm sure will spawn innumerable sequels for years to come. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans! This is Metagirl with the top five highest grossing Friday the 13th movies of all time. Number 5 is Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, which opened in 1985 and killed audiences to the tune of $21 million. At number 4 is the 3D slasher piece Friday the 13th Part 3, which pulled in a presentable $36 million. The original is still doing well, and it comes in at number 3 with $59 million in sales. Number 2 is the Friday the 13th Reboot from 2009, which pulled in $90 million. And the number one highest grossing Friday the 13th movie of all time is 2003's Freddy vs. Jason, which grossed $114 million. And there you have it, the Retroist's top five highest grossing Friday the 13th movies of all time. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. Over the years, Jason has appeared in video games, on toys, and comic books. He's become, to modern audiences, as famous as Frankenstein was to early moviegoers. I don't know what the future will be like, 
But one thing's for sure. As long as there are teenagers going to summer camps, there'll be a place in our culture for Jason Voorhees. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top five list. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Ma, 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 ma. This has been a retrospective. Goodbye.